3: It's Friday, December 29th, 2023, and I'm Candace Kelly sitting in for Roland. Here's what's coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered streaming live on the Black Star Network. Since it's the last Friday of the year, we will look at some of the biggest stories in 2023. We'll also preview what we can expect in the new year from Congress, the Supreme Court, and of course the elections. Our own panel will get to throw in their own 2024 predictions. Also, that ought to be interesting. Right now, it's time to bring in the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got
4: Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find, And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling, best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics.
3: Good evening, and welcome to the Roland Martin Unfiltered Year in Review show. My panel for tonight, Michael Limpotep, host of the African History Network show. He's joining us from Detroit, Michigan, and Matt Manning. He's a civil rights attorney, and he joins us from Corpus Christi, Texas. Are you guys ready to take a look at some of the stories we have not stopped talking about? Well, Vice President... There are several stories that we're going to be covering: Trump indictment trials. First of all, I wanted to talk about Vice, Pre- Vice Harris, President Harris' and Africa College tour in Tennessee. Three expelled, um, McCarthy appointment, and the ousting assault and the assault on African American studies. So I, I, let's first, first of all, welcome to my guests. I know that this is uh, holiday season. Good to see you. Let's talk a little bit about um, what happened in Tennessee? All right. We, we had, um, three people that were ousted and they were all brought back in. I mean, it really was kind of a power to the people who spoke. I want to start with you, Michael, about that story and what you think the legacy of that will be. And will this actually make it to the history books?
5: Well, uh, good to see you again, Candace. Yes, I think it'll make it to the history books. Uh, yeah, Representative uh, Justin Pearson and Representative Justin Jones, uh, two African-Americans uh, who were expelled. Uh, the, the one white female, she was spared by one vote. This is this is a legacy of the state of Tennessee, which is a former Confederate state, a state that, that, that did not remove the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a Confederate general who uh, also led the Fort Pillow Massacre of 1864, and he was also the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan right around 1867. They didn't remove the bust in Nathan Bedford Forrest till about 2021, and Roland Martin covered that right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. So what we saw was these two young. Powerful African American elected officials who are trying to fight for voting rights legislation. I mean, so uh, gun, uh, uh, gun reform, gun laws, responsible gun reform laws that would positively impact their communities, and they and they were they were shut down because the old white guard, the old white Republican guard, did not like how they were expressing themselves. So yeah, this is something that's going to make it to the history books, uh, and you know, we see that. Uh, slavery, as well as the Civil War, is in the news today. We saw the debacle from Nikki Haley. Yes, who, we did. You know, yeah, so we, we see this uh, come in full circle again. So, yeah, this is going to make it into the history books.
3: And, and, Matt, I think that one of the things that this story speaks especially to is the power that young people, or younger people, depending upon how old you are, really make a difference.
6: Yeah, I think that's a, a great um, observation. They do really make a difference, and also they buck the system in ways that the old guard as, as michael indicated are not ready for and are not accepting of right so really a lot of that that protest or that uh, opposition to their protest rather came from how they expressed themselves and that's what we see in state houses around the country is we see not only ideological issues but we see people who don't like the way that people are doing it and representing the people whom they represent so i'm glad both of these brothers are there um are back there i know it will be in the history books but beyond that we know that it's intellectually dishonest a lot of it because the same things that they were pushing back against you see people like tommy tuberville doing right filibustering to not let military appointments go through um, in the way that they think is acceptable. And really, this is a, a referendum on decorum, right? Absolutely. The idea that you're not doing it the way that we want you to do it. So I think that's part and parcel with that idea of of young people not only being important, but young people doing it the way they want to do it and the way that the people whom they represent want them to do it, and that pushing back against the old guard and their ideas of decorum.
3: Yes, and and you make an interesting point about decorum because many times when we are stopped on the street or when we are stopped in a restaurant, when we're stopped at hotels, it often is about how we are doing something that people just don't like. It's just a process of decorum and something that doesn't sit well with them, but they can do it on their own
6: terms. That's precisely right. And we see that. We see that a lot. In fact, if I remember correctly, um, one of the things that came out of this was there was an assault charge down the road, right, where the speaker himself was uh, allegedly assaulted, Mr. Johnson, I believe it was. Um, And I know there was video of that. But, you know, that just shows you the kinds of fires that are being stoked in these state houses. And Rowland's not here. But what he would say is what? Voting matters. And this is why it's important that people come out and vote, because, What's happening in our state houses is people playing politics, not protecting the people. And that's what this was uh, indicative of, them playing politics and not liking how these young brothers were standing up for the people they represent. You're right. Roland would
3: say, get to the polls. This is why it matters. I also wanted to talk about Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris. We didn't hear quite a bit about her college tour, her um, Africa tour. And I think that is interesting how she is being marketed, if you will, like the public relations effort with the vice president. How do you think that's going, Michael? Because the fact is that she is doing something, but it is not always in the headlines. And I'm not sure exactly what the administration is doing to really sell her
5: well the uh earlier in the year the administration said that they were going to start utilizing her more and and having her more out front we know that she did the HBCU uh college tour which i think was extremely important and to do it this year because this is an off year uh for the election and then do part two of it in September October of 2024 leading up to the November uh 2024 election she had her uh she had her africa tour now um let me, let me try to put this as politely as I can. uh cannot. Africa cannot trust the United States. Let me just put it like that. And Africa cannot trust Russia. And that's one of my teachers, Professor James Small, who knows more about this than anybody else, who told me that personally. Africa can't trust the U.S. Africa can't trust um, uh, Russia. Or China, for that matter. Or China. So um, she is doing the job of a vice president. But it, even, it, even more importantly, and something that's gotten a little... Uh, bit of coverage, is that she had, uh, I think it was more tie-breaking votes in the Senate as, as vice president, because the vice president presides over the Senate based upon the Constitution, than any other vice president. And you would not have had an American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, or the Inflation Reduction Act without her tie-breaking vote. Okay, so she definitely deserves credit for that.
3: You know, Matt, I think it's interesting because when I talk to a lot of people about voting for President Biden, what they're really saying is I'm voting for Biden, but I am possibly voting for the vice president. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how she's being presented by the administration, how the media is and is not holding on to some of the things that she has been doing.
6: You know, I don't know. I don't know that I really have a coherent thought on that because I don't think the administration is countering what the very obvious conversations are about Mr. Biden's age. And whether he's fit to be president, well, because they should be using someone uh, like Vice President Harris, I think, more robustly. However, if we're honest, I think one of the things that the administration is concerned about is pushing away, you know, middle-class voters who may be in the middle of the road, primarily white voters, um, by not characterizing her as a radical, right, not pushing them away, particularly in the age of Trump. I'm imagining that's a lot of their kind of PR strategy, Um, I think that is a failing strategy for two reasons. First, I think she's eminently capable. I mean, obviously, she's not only been a senator, but she was a district attorney. And if anybody can speak on their feet and speak to people and communicate the administration's policy, it's an attorney, right? I mean, and we've seen her do that, number one. So I think they should use her more robustly there. But number two, I think the more they use her, the more they assert she is not only a part of this team, but she's an indispensable part of this team. And if the reins are in her hands, She's in, she's got capable hands. I think the more they keep her in the background, the more they indicate that they don't think she's, in, she's capable hands. And she obviously is. So I think the administration needs to find a way to not push away the people they're afraid of pushing away, but also make use of her strengths, which we know there are uh, many of.
3: You know, African-American studies has been on trial. It's interesting to look at the history Of this um, not only with Ron DeSantis but just across the country and how history books are literally being altered What are your expectations? I mean when we look at the black community We have been stepping up in churches and homes and trying to really fill in the blanks Michael Uh, What do you think that we as a community need to be doing in terms of the next steps to try to put this to a halt?
5: Well, um, we need to uh, reclaim our history, uh, embrace our history. We need to continue the fight. What's going on in Florida right now is a clear example of an attempt to suppress the teaching of African-American history, as well as the history of slavery, specifically, uh, or or sanitize how it's taught. We see that African-American churches, hundreds of African-American churches have stepped up. They're using a study guide uh, put together by um, faith in I think it's faith and freedom. Uh, it's an organization in Florida a nonprofit organization and it consists of like 11 uh, chapters and it's a, a study guide that deals with African American history. Uh, so I, I did a broadcast about this and you have them th- 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 as a direct result of Governor Ron DeSantis and the Florida Department of Education and their uh, social study standards that were released earlier this year, They said that they had to start teaching this history in the churches to our own people. So you have that fight. At the same time, we have to push because the history of African-Americans has to be taught in every school across the country. The way you treat a people is largely based upon what you know about a people. What you know about a people is what you've been told, Mm. taught about a people, based upon everything you've read, seen, and heard. And this is something that Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who created Negro History Week in 1926— who co-founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History taught he professed this. Okay, he knew that the history of African Americans had to be taught in every school across the country, not just schools that we attend. Okay, so the the fight continues, but this also is a uh, this also boils down to who you vote into office. And Governor Ron DeSantis is one of the most disingenuous people because he has a history he has a, a, a history degree from Yale University and a law degree from Harvard mm-hmm. University. He knows better. Than he knows being
3: better
6: by the full Department of Education.
3: Matt, your thoughts on African-American history, where it's going.
6: So first, I don't think that we're really looking at this with the right lens. Um, Frankly, we're starting with the premise that there is a belief that African-American history is as valuable as European history. Uh, The reality is these people who are trying to suppress it don't think it's as valuable. So one of the first things that I think needs to happen is there needs to be an attack from the standpoint of our children are entitled to learn about their history. Not only this would be valuable to you, but they're entitled to know about it. Michael's 100 percent right. Um, if my children don't learn about their forebears and the road that they tried, you know, to make their lives easier, then they don't know the fullness of who they are. And what we need to find a way to do is to compel these states and these localities to require the teaching of history. And here's the thing. What we've allowed to happen in this country is a, a co-opting of the conversation where African-American history is being lumped into this you know, nebulous, scary wokeness, right? This idea of uh, something that is uh, against the the mainstream ethic, if you will. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is we're not talking about ideology. We're talking about history. We're talking about the facts of what black people did and contributed to this country. So not allowing that conversation to be taken askew the way it has been. It's been made an ideological thing, and it's not that. It's a historical thing. And all children, particularly black children, are greatly detrimented when they don't learn from the ancestors who, you know, trod the road for them. So I think we need to take a legal approach and I think Mm. that legal approach needs to be rooted somewhere likely in equal protection or somewhere as it relates to the right to learn about your history, because that's really what we're seeing them being divested of.
3: Yeah, yeah, some good thoughts there. I wanna make sure we also go to Trump. And his trials is not just news story of 2023, but it's going to go into 2024. Certainly, we have a calendar that is filled with trials that actually, Michael, we see that Trump is using as a part of his marketing campaign. He is surging in the polls. It is very interesting that these trials really don't have people thinking uh, any other way. Now we're looking at the Constitution trying to figure out the rights of the President. What are your thoughts about the President, his trials, and the, what the ultimate impact could potentially be in the 2024 election?
5: Well, uh, yeah, 91 counts for criminal trials, first time in history that a president has been uh, indicted on uh, criminal charges. And um, at least one of these trials could very well go to trial before the November 2024 uh, election. This is an off year. A lot of people are not paying attention to this. Those here at Rolla Martin Unfiltered, we pay attention to this on a daily basis. And yes, he's going to grift, and yes, he's going to raise money uh, off of of this and raise money uh, off of making himself the victim, because that's what he does. Um, I think, as we go into 2024, it's going to become more prevalent of, uh, one, what he is is being accused of, and this is going to tie to the January 6, 2021 insurrection, which was an insurrection. Two, uh, people are going to start realizing more what a second Trump term can look like. They're going to learn about Project 2025. They're going to learn about the the, the plan that uh, tr- uh, the Trump uh, uh, acolytes have uh, with the Schedule F employees and uh, getting rid of thousands of government employees and replacing them with uh, Trump loyalists. Okay, And they're going to start seeing the difference between a democracy, even though it's imperfect, and an an authoritarian government, which is what Trump is proposing. So uh, I think these trials are going to have a huge impact uh, in November 2024, and it's going to be to the detriment of Donald Trump.
3: Matt, to the detriment of Donald Trump, or as we've seen with the polls, he's surging and he will continue to
6: surge? Uh, Well, you know, I think those aren't mutually exclusive. I think he may continue to to surge, but I think he may be cooked in at least one of these trials. I think the Mar-a-Lago trial is going to be among the most difficult for him because I think the undisputed evidence will be his team had an opportunity to confer with the government and was not only not honest, but that there was some uh, intentional acts on his part intended to not return some of those documents. So I think that'll be problematic for him. I also think Fannie Willis has built a, a great uh, trial there, or rather a, a, a case there in Georgia, although I do uh, wonder what the evidence is going to be as it relates to linking him to the conspiracy. But those are separate issues. As it relates to him and his marketing, I mean, we've seen that his team is adept at using these things to foment um, anti-government sentiment and to foment, you know, you can't trust anybody but me. Um, I think he's been effective with that. But I do think that this is a really uh, effective barometer for us to see the people out there who are open to living in an authoritarian society, because I don't want it to be histrionics, but it's the truth. When he says, I'm going to be a dictator on day one, when he completely flouts the entire legal system and says, you know, rule of law for everyone who doesn't look like me, but if you're saying I did something wrong, you can't trust it because it's all fake and it's all corrupt. That's when we start our descent into, you know, banana republic, frankly. That's when we start our descent into a, a society that is willing to you know, uh, grip on to the rantings of an authoritarian, somebody who's telling you they want to be an authoritarian, and that's what I think is really problematic about this. So if the juries really make decisions based Mm. on evidence, they find beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed these crimes, then I think that will let us know that there is still some basis uh, for the rule of law, so to speak, uh, here in this country. If not, if he walks on everything, then I think we begin our descent into authoritarianism you know full speed ahead
3: all right and full speed ahead we go with our year in review this is roland martin unfiltered on the black star network and we'll be right back
7: a new year for a new you Curl Prep Natural Hair Solutions at curlprep.com. is an amazing organic line for curls, locks, braids, twists, and even those wigs and extensions. Women, men, and children are loving this line. Look at this video and you be the judge. People line up to see this product in action at hair shows, and when they take a seat and try it, they don't believe it's their hair. Buy the products at curlprep.com. It works on all hair types. Use code ROLAND, that's R-O-L-A-N-D, lowercase letters, to get a 15% discount. Parents, Magic. remove the ouch. You will love this system because you can comb the product through your child's hair with your fingers. Season Saints are loving the product. It's all at curlprep.com. Use code ROLIN, lowercase letters, to get a 15% discount. You won't believe it's your hair.
4: i
3: Some other top stories that had us talking in 2023 relating to police brutality in Memphis, Tennessee, the brutal killing of Tyree Nichols. Desmond Mills agreed to plead guilty to federal and state charges to Darius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Emmett Martin, the third and Justin Smith will face a jury in August of 2024. And what about the Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker torture in Mississippi? Five former Rankin County Sheriff's deputies pled guilty to state charges of obstruction of justice, conspiracy to hinder prosecution and home invasion. In Jackson, Mississippi, Dexter Wade was fatally struck by an off-duty police officer on March 5th. He was buried for more than five months before authorities notified his family. In Alabama, Stephen Perkins was shot and killed outside of his home in the early hours of September 29th by Decatur Police Department officers after an altercation with a tow truck driver. Three unarmed, three unnamed police officers were fired and one was suspended. In Atlanta, Georgia, 62-year-old Johnny Holman Sr. died after being tased by police officer Karen Kimbrough. Um, He was ultimately fired. Now, when we look at all of these cases, it doesn't seem like much changes from year to year. Matt, let me start with you. Um, When you look at these cases, I think the one that certainly got the most attention was Tyree Nichols. And so many people had um, interesting feelings about this case because it was black police officers. What do you think the legacy of this case is going to be, especially when it comes to police brutality not being often in the world of just black and white?
6: That's a good question. I think it it shows that there is a subset of people and a lot of cops who choose the thin blue line over their own color and over morality, number one. But I think what it's also going to show people is what people have been saying for years. There is so much that happens behind the scenes, behind closed doors, that people have attested to happening to them that we didn't have on video. But what's so crazy about this case to me is that these officers did this not only in broad daylight but did this somehow not recognizing there was an overhead camera. But that camera caught this situation, this police brutality situation, better than virtually any that we've had in the past, at least to this extent. And what's scary about that is that this is what citizens have dealt with over decades, especially our people over the hundreds of years we've been here, and that people have been saying, man, let me tell you what happened to me. But it wasn't always on video. This shows you that this kind of thing happens um, from officers that look like you and officers who don't look like you. And I think that that is a um, a terrifying thing, but it is something that buttresses what we've heard for years, that this is the kind of conduct that some officers engage in. And as I say on this show every time I'm on the show, um, what bothers me about these cases is that morally there is absolutely no question that mm-hmm. not only should these people rot in jail, but there should be recompense for the families. But the system of doing that is still one... That is caught, you know, in the 1800s. It hasn't caught up to to modernity in real life. And what we have to do is we have to require that our legislators make it easier for people to vindicate the deprivation of their civil rights, because we can watch these videos and know that what happened is heinous. But when you go to court, it's still climbing Mount Everest to hold somebody accountable. And that shouldn't be the case when we all know the truth of what we're seeing in cases like this.
3: And Michael, it's climbing Mount Everest. And ultimately, when you get to the top, it ultimately goes to the Department of Justice. or often that is what um, these uh, the police departments um, and attorneys want um, to happen in terms of the Department of Justice getting involved. But I think that Matt brings up an interesting point in that technology really has changed things, and that's one of the things that people need to keep in mind in order to assure that, unfortunately, it's gonna be your word against another person's word. Without these cameras, none of these cases, you know, would have happened.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um... With the Department of Justice, some of these cases the Department of Justice can bring. This is one of the most heinous cases, so uh, there will probably be uh, civil rights charges from the Department of Justice. But Department of Justice can't Prosecute every case, even you know they don't have the resources to prosecute every case. What we have seen uh, the Department of Justice do is to restart the patterns and practices investigations into police departments, which was basically stopped under the Trump administration under his two attorney generals. So that's extremely important. Uh, this was a um, this was a heinous uh, alleged uh, uh, killing here, and I say alleged because they haven't been prosecuted. So you are both attorneys, you know, what I have to say alleged, uh, <laughs> and and you know. The fact that this took place in Memphis, Tennessee, where Dr. King was assassinated April 4th, 1968, and there were African-American civil rights workers that fought for African-Americans to be on the police department and for something like this to happen, um, you know, and this is just a, a real tragedy. It didn't have to happen like, you know, this, this did not have to happen. OK, if you have to apprehend him, we, he, he did get away. There, there were two incidents. He did get away from the first incident. If you have to apprehend him, just apprehend him. Right. Okay. Why, right. Why do you have to allegedly have to beat him? OK, so this is just inexcusable.
3: Yeah, There, there are um, police uh, departments across the country that are trying to change the tide um, a, a little bit. Um, Matt, when it comes to making sure that the community is involved, um, putting psychologists or, or, or people who know how to interact with others on the team. What do you think about these practices of, of the handful of police departments that have tried new things and some of them really have had great success, like, uh, like in Camden and in upstate New York?
6: I think it's mainly lip service. I mean, if we're being honest, I think a lot of it is political. Uh, chiefs of police, especially in large jurisdictions, are politicians more than they are anything else. And a lot of times, they'll talk about data and metrics and having a crisis intervention team and all the things that are cutting edge. And I'm glad it's worked anecdotally in a few places. But I think, by and large, there's still a culture of us versus them in police departments across the country. And what that culminates in is people being beaten and hurt as a means to the end of you know, keeping crime at bay or, frankly, as a means to an end of them perpetuating their own crimes. But the reality is, what we have seen around the country is, a lot of times, those chiefs end up being ousted because people don't want that light shown on the department, and they don't want it shown on all of those instances that don't end up being a killing, but are nonetheless deprivations of people's rights and, beyond that, deprivations of people's dignity. Uh, The police should theoretically be there to protect you, not in any way to persecute you. And that's what we know happens in a lot of places, and I think a lot of times that data and metrics is a way to hide behind not actually rooting out the culture that is uh, responsible for a lot of these killings and beatings that we see around the country.
3: Michael, I, I wanna turn um, to the story out of Mississippi where you did have two gentlemen that were tortured in a home, police officers came in, seemed like just for the fun of it. Then in an interesting twist, Michael, they all pled guilty. What do you make of that? I, I thought it was so interesting that all of them pled guilty in this day and time when they probably had other options for them, even if the camera did tell a different story that is often the case, but this seemed rather peculiar.
5: Yeah, this specific case, I think I remember this vaguely. I think we talked about it here. Um, the, the video footage probably revealed what actually happened. So if you if you have police officers who plead guilty, It's probably because they know that there's incriminating evidence against them, okay? And if they plead guilty, they can get a better deal. Usually they can get a better deal than if they're found guilty in court, okay? Uh, So, you know, once again, you know, this is Mississippi. You have, uh, appears to be five white officers, one who may be white or Hispanic, but uh, could be half and half, who knows? But uh, once again, this is just something that's senseless, okay? And I I would like to know, based upon the evidence, what's presented uh, in court, um, was there any racial motivation or documented racial motivation behind this? Not what we perceive, well, not what we think, but actually what we can prove.
3: Right. And Matt, when we look at it, um, perhaps Michael's on to something. They pled guilty. I mean, really, they had no choice. And when you plead guilty, then you do have at least a few, maybe one ace in your hand to do a little bit of negotiating.
6: Maybe, but, you know, pleading guilt is a lot of times purely a risk mitigation thing, right? I mean, like, to Michael's point, they may not have clear evidence of it being racially motivated, but their lawyers may have told them, you need to be worried that if a jury thinks it was racially motivated, they're going to pop you with a much heavier sentence than they would if they don't. So a lot of that is risk mitigation, but I think he's exactly right. I think if these lawyers were, you know, skilled, effective, experienced lawyers, they may have looked at it and said, you're dead to rights. That's what happens a lot of times, with a guilty plea, you don't have a a real way to defend this and you're gonna go to a jury and get popped. So hopefully what this is indicative of is that the evidence there was truly strong. But the one benefit of a guilty plea is generally you can't appeal it, right? Unless there's some some kind of fraud or something that the court finds is uh, justifies uh, overturning the conviction. So the good thing here is you have people that will for sure be punished for their crimes rather than maybe doing a little time and then being released on a technicality.
3: You have three sons, correct? I do. You know, I- I'm wondering, how have, has your conversation with them morphed over the years, or, or, or will it when we continue to see the same types of incidents and, and killings and tortures
6: o- over the years? Well, thankfully, my sons are so young that they're more worried about Mario than they are anything else right <laughs> now.
3: So you're not quite there yet, but you are, I'm sure you are planning.
6: I am, but you know, it's interesting that you would ask that because you know, my, my concern starts even at the behavioral in their school, right? You know, the level of how they're being disciplined as opposed to the other children. Uh, thankfully, the school they go to knows I'm a civil rights lawyer, so hopefully they don't want that smoke. But outside <laughs> of that, um, the truth of the matter is I have to always be conscious of that, right? Because they move to the world and the world sees them as black men. And the reality for black men in this country, especially, is we have a target on our back. So um, I think what I'll have to do, of course, is not only give them, quote, the talk, but prepare them with the information to protect themselves, because as we talked about last time on the show, a lot of times we're in situations where we don't have the information on how to protect ourselves, and we make missteps that end up hurting us on the back end, right, Um, in terms of admissions or other things that we say or how we interact with the police. So, uh, God willing, the conversations I'll have with them are about not to consent to searches, about how to conduct themselves, how to keep their eyes open about things that are going on, because a lot of these cases, you know, it's easy for an officer to say I was in fear of my life, and then we're having a different conversation. So, um, it's unfortunate, but in in reality, I have to prepare my sons for the reality of the world, which is when you come into contact with a police officer, you need to handle yourself in a way such that they know you're not a threat. And that's it's terrible that we have to do that, but that's the truth. Especially if you're on the back road in South Texas and one of the few black kids who you know, lives out here, you got to be prepared for that, and that's just the truth of it.
3: That's right, especially after the sun goes down. Michael, I want to wrap with you. Um, sure. You know, we talk about perception, and often that is what this is about. This is about police officers, whether they're black or white, when we talk about Tyree Nichols and how they perceive a black man or woman, their strength, what their fears are, uh, and, and what they think uh, this person should be doing and what they are allowed to to do, And I think that that's been a thread through so many of these cases, is that there's a perception that, that we are just uh, more of a threat.
5: Well, yeah, but that's been perpetuated by media for decades. Uh, if we go back to uh, February 8, 1914, there was a huge New York Times article that talked about how, uh, because of prohibition, Negroes were turning to uh, sniffing cocaine because whiskey was illegal. And in this article, it talked about uh, the fear uh, that black men, when they're high on cocaine, will try to rape white women? And do police officers now need to carry a 45 caliber handgun because uh, because the 38 is not powerful enough to kill a Negro on cocaine? So this is in the history of this country, perpetuated by the media. So this goes back to uh, one of our earlier stories, why the history, why African-American studies, African-American history has to be taught in every school across the country, because it attacks a lot of these stereotypes that are perpetu- perpetuated by the media. And when you've been in inundated with tens of thousands of negative images of a targeted group. When you come in contact with someone who's representative of that targeted group, you act based upon your programming. So African-American history, African-American studies helps to deprogram white supremacy.
3: Mm -hmm. I like the way you tie that all together. All right. We have a lot more with Roland Martin Unfiltered. You're watching the Black Star Network. and We'll be back after a break.
4: your business or career with Grow with Google's wide range of online courses, digital training and tools. Gain in-demand job skills with flexible online training programs designed to put you on the fast track to jobs in high growth fields. No experience is necessary. Learn at your own pace, complete the online certificate program on your own terms. Stand out to employers, get on a path to in-demand jobs and connect with top employers who are currently hiring. Take one professional career certificate program or all six. Earn a Google Career Certificate to prepare for a job in a high-growth field like data analytics, project management, UX design, cybersecurity, and more. All professional career certificate programs must be completed by December 31, 2024. Scan the QR code to complete the application. There are 1,000 scholarships available. Grow with Google and J. Hood and Associates. Be job ready and qualify for in-demand jobs
3: don't you think it's time to get wealthy i'm deborah owens america's wealth coach and my new show on the black star network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you so watch
4: get wealthy on the black star network
3: Right, right, we're looking at some headlining stories of 2023. Now, here are some... Baltimore's former top prosecutor Marilyn Mosby was convicted of two counts of perjury. The federal jury found she did lie about her finances to withdraw money from the city's retirement account under a program designed to help people struggling financially during the coronavirus pandemic. And of course, the Elijah McClain trials. Remember this: paramedics Peter um, Peter Cicl- Cic- Cicuniac, excuse me, and Jeremy Q- Cooper and Randy Rodema were convicted of contributing to Elijah's death. Jason Rosenblatt and Nathan Woodyard were acquitted of all of the charges. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, former Louisville officer Brett Hankey. Hankinson will be tried for a second time in a federal court for his role in the 2020 death of Breonna Taylor. In November, there was a mistrial and he was acquitted in 2022 on state charges. And black teen, Ralph Yarl, remember, he was shot by Andrew Lester on April 13th. He was the one who accidentally went to the wrong address to pick up his siblings. Lester is charged with one count of felony assault in the first degree and one count of armed criminal action. And we can't forget about Carly Russell. Remember her? She was convicted for faking her July 13th kidnapping admitting she was not abducted from the side of an Alabama highway where, when she said she was stopped, she stopped to check on a toddler who was walking alone. Well, gentlemen, let's just go backwards. Let's start with Carly. Lesson learned there in terms of listening to facts and really understanding um, what makes sense in a story, you do have to pay attention. And I think that once people heard that story, a lot of people were questioning it, were they not, Michael?
5: Uh, some people were questioning. And other people were riding with her because they wanted to believe her. Now, you know, it, this is this is an African American woman who is clearly has some problems that she probably needs some therapy or something like that. But um, you know, some of us. It, this, Another story that ties right to this yes. th- that's something similar is Tyler Perry buying BET. People couldn't figure that out either. Uh, tr- true, people, true. People, Tyler Perry didn't buy BET, and I laid out the facts why. Here, we saw all these different holes in her story as they, started, as they laid out a detailed timeline of what happened. So it's like, it's not, it's not, I think some people have OJ residue Right. Mm. If you don't believe if you if, if, if you say he did it, then all of a sudden you're a sellout or something like that. It's like sometimes black people lie. I'm just I'm just saying sometimes <laughs> they do for whatever reason.
3: Right. And, you know, Matt, I think there was um, the, the will of a lot of people to really want to to believe her. Um, but again, I think after a while, once people started thinking about all of the details again we want we want to give people a chance um but it it did unravel um, after about a weekend I think um, and I'm not sure how you felt about that Matt what were your thoughts
6: so I was suppressing the smile first because you took a hard right on this segment I, I did not see Carly Russell coming up <laughs> this. Uh, but, uh, all jokes aside you know it's it's interesting right because it's it shows the Nexus of what we should be doing mm-hmm. which is supporting survivors and victims and believing their account of what happened to them, but with the requisite amount of not skepticism, but the requisite amount of evaluation, because I think both things can be true. There are a lot of stories of survivors and victims who don't tell what happened to them for 10, 20 years, and it's nonetheless the truth, right? So we should give some level of credence to it, but I struggle sometimes as a lawyer because my job is to not only compile, but to also evaluate evidence. And I think what happened in this case is it shows you how quickly things can go in the media and how quickly they can just kind of be a firestorm when the truth is is much further from what's being reported than is what's being reported. So this is a, a strange case. I've always thought it was strange. Um, clearly, you know there are some things behind the scenes that we don't know about, uh, likely related to her mental health. But I will say that it's good that what I saw, especially from the Black community, is people trying to support this sister and her family and. I would rather us try to support someone and be wrong at the end, right, Yes. And say we don't believe them, and then find out they were telling the truth. Um, And it's a a difficult tightrope to walk. I mean, I think to be credible, we have to evaluate evidence and the weight of that evidence. But I also think we have to recognize that there is a lot of strength and courage uh, required to come forward. And sometimes people don't find that immediately. And when they do, we should support them, um, but also give space to evaluate the evidence. And I think this is a good example of that. We stood behind her. And then once we learned that what she said wasn't true, then we evaluated that evidence and we move on.
3: Yes. And if people didn't stand behind her, it would be a very bad precedent. And that would prevent people from coming forth because then you think that people just won't believe you. And as you both have said, Michael, this really was a case that had to do probably with mental health and a lot of moving parts behind the scenes, as Matt put it, that we just didn't know about, Michael.
5: Absolutely. And this is a call for more funding for mental health and uh, especially in the African-American community destigmatizing uh, mental health and and needing to go to therapy, things like that. We we have this stigma in the African American community. A lot of it is probably a holdover from slavery, not being able to get the proper health care during slavery, and, and, and then and even somewhat so after slavery as well. And dealing with the psychological trauma that we've been through uh, in this country, whether it's racial terror, whether it's uh, sexual violence, etc. And 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 the sexual violence can come from white people, or it can it can be it can be intra-racial, it can be African American men. Inflicting sexual violence on African American women. So, uh, at the at the but at the uh, end of the day, this calls for uh, more funding when it comes to mental health and destigmatizing the need for mental health in the African American community.
3: Matt Ralph Yaral went to the wrong house, went to get his siblings, um, and then he was shot. Now, when we look at this particular case, it it just reminds me of the fact that, you know, in New York they, they say, you know, you say something, you see something, you say something, um, and, and this just sometimes when I see different things, it gives me hesit- hesitance to even do anything or get involved because you just don't know how people will react these days. What is the takeaway from this Ralph Yarl situation?
6: Part of it is my dad is right. The Reverend Manning would tell me when he calls me, he said, son, you know, these conservatives are always talking about guns. And here in Texas, everybody wants to have a gun. And what happens is people shoot first and ask questions later. I say that first to invoke my dad. So right. <laughs> but secondly, um, I-, I don't think he's wrong. I think what is scary about this is this is exactly what you see being the uh, expected consequence of emboldening people to do things like just shoot first and ask questions later. Um, I don't know all the evidence in this case. I suspect a lot of what happened, if not all of it, is because Ralph Yarl Yarl is a young black man, but this did really concern me because I have a 13-year-old son and he could go to the wrong door and he could be shot by somebody, especially in a place like Texas where so many people have guns. Um, So what I'm hoping here is that the jury threads the needle on this because what concerns me about this case is it was this gentleman's property, right? So he's on his property. And as you know, Candace, and you know as well, Michael, there may be people who say, you know, he's on his property, he doesn't have to wait uh, to retreat or he doesn't have to wait to find out if somebody's there to hurt him. But what juries have to do in this situation for all the viewers is they have to evaluate the the veracity of the self-defense or the stand your ground if they have that in Kansas. Um, And that's really the question here. Did he have a reasonable belief that Ralph Yarrow was there to hurt him, and I think all of the evidence that I've seen at least shows there's absolutely no way he could have that reasonable belief. So that being the case, this should be a situation where 12 people convict him by looking at a a nuanced view of the evidence and showing he had no reasonable belief to believe he was in fear of his safety and therefore could not use force. It seems to me pretty simple now, I don't have all the evidence, but I don't know that there's anything that indicates Ralph Yarol was in any way threatening him. So hopefully there will be justice for this young man because this absolutely should not have happened to him.
3: Michael, do you think that this reasonable belief expectation um, is, is, is met by this man or that potentially a jury could think that this man did have a right to do what he did because he reasonably believed that he uh, was going to be harmed in some way and it was his home?
5: Um... Well, not having seen all the evidence here, um, just going by news reports, I don't see anything that stated that Ralph Yarl was actually a threat. He tried to open the door, but, you know, just because... If somebody comes to your door and jiggles the handle, does that mean you should shoot through the door and shoot them in the head? Um, And this is what happened here. Now, what's interesting, what could be a defense here is uh, going to what uh, his grandson said, that his grandfather sits up and watches uh, Fox News all day. <laughs> and his grandfather is fed these negative, stereotypical mm. images of African-Americans and fed, and fed fear through Fox News.
3: That's what, okay? we, that's what we were talking about before.
5: Yeah, it's propaganda of the media. So, and then he came in contact with someone who was representative of that demographic that he's been fed negative information about, and he responded based upon the programming that came through the media. This is what happened. So, um, I haven't seen anything that says, you know, and, and the other thing was he said that he was scared. Just because you're scared or startled does not mean you can shoot, it doesn't mean somebody is a threat because you're scared or startled. That's the other thing, you have to have judgment if you are a gun owner. So um, hopefully this guy will be convicted.
3: Uh, So I wanna talk about Elijah McClain briefly because we talked about it uh, extensively the other day when the paramedics um, were convicted. Uh, Certainly this is quite a precedent, Matt, uh, especially with you being a civil rights attorney. When we talk about um, the rights of someone who uh, were, was in a situation uh, like Elijah McClain, what the police did to him and, and how he died because of the lack of intervention of the paramedics, except for to give him an overdose of ketamine. Um, what do you think about this precedent being set in terms of holding paramedics who work for the state and the county on federal-level charges?
6: So I haven't seen how the charges are lobbied, but as always, you ask an an incredibly astute question because (laughs) I just had to turn somebody away not long ago to explain. Unfortunately, there's nothing I've seen that puts an affirmative duty on first responders to act a certain way in a certain situation. The reason that's important is because people tell you all the time, oh, I called the police. They didn't show up for two hours or they showed up and they took a report. They didn't arrest this person. Right. People don't understand that they don't have an affirmative duty to act in the way you think they should in every circumstance. This actually bucks that precedent and I think sets a good precedent, provided it's something that can be sustained um, by the courts in terms of setting the, the standard of proof for that. And what I basically mean is, you know, paramedics are medical professionals, right? So when they come to a scene, they should have autonomy on deciding whether to do one thing versus another thing because they have the medical training requisite for that. However, where a jury determines that they have not met their duty to the person that they're treating um, by virtue of inaction, I think that sets a very important precedent. Because like with anything else, like we see with doctors in the hospital setting, there are times where racism causes medical professionals to not render medical care because they either don't believe the person is saying that they're in pain and that that pain is truthful, or for some other reason, they have a bias that doesn't allow them to treat them the same way they might, Mm. a white person or of a different group, right? So this sets a very important precedent because it says if you're a first responder and you have an affirmative duty to respond, then you functionally have an affirmative duty to do your best job and to take care of somebody. You don't get to not take care of them. And I think that's important because I would imagine with paramedics and a lot of other first responders over the years, there have been people who have been hurt by this inaction. And you generally, at least I haven't seen, where you sue a paramedic for that the same way you might a doctor in a hospital setting for medical malpractice. So I think this is important to set that precedent. I do think it, however, needs to have the limits of courts looking at it and setting a a standard of proof that allows us to be sustainable and hold up on appeal.
3: A lot of interesting points there, but really an examination of the fiduciary responsibility of a paramedic. um, And also just the fact that they didn't do the baseline Checking his vitals and overestimating his weight and just being too quick to act because, again, probably of the perception um, of, of what was going on there. All right. Well, Roland Martin unfiltered. will be right back here on the Black Star Network. Stay with us.
7: on the black table with me, Greg Carr, the enigma of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. What really makes him tick? And what forces shaped his view of the world, the country, and black America? The answer, I'm pretty sure, will shock you.
1: And he says, you know, people think that I'm anachronistic. I am, I wanna go backwards in time in order to move us forward into the future. He's very upfront about
2: this.
7: We'll talk to Corey Robin, the man who wrote the book that reveals it all. That's next on The Black Table, only on the Black Star Network. A new year for a new you. Curl Prep Natural Hair Solutions at curlprep.com is an amazing organic line for curls, locks, braids, twists, and even those wigs and extensions. Women, men, and children are loving this line. Look at this video and you be the judge. People line up to see this product in action at hair shows, and when they take a seat and try it, they don't believe it's their hair. Buy the products at curlprep.com. It works on all hair types. Use code ROLAND, that's R-O-L-A-N-D, lowercase letters, to get a 15% discount. Parents, remove the ouch. You will love this system because you can comb the product through your child's hair with your fingers. Seasoned Saints are loving the product. It's all at curlprep.com. Use code ROLAND, lowercase letters, to get a 15% discount. You won't believe it's your hair. what I need. Give me that
3: All right. Our year in review. Let's talk about 2023 and a couple things going on in the Supreme Court of the United States. They were busier than ever. We're going to touch upon affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, voting rights. And of course, Clarence Thomas. Gentlemen, Clarence Thomas and those ethics concerns were certainly something. Um, that were a big deal. In fact, there have been some new ethics rules that have been created for the Supreme Court. And I think that people have been wondering all along, Matt, why were there not these ethics rules in place before? But Clarence Thomas certainly shed light on it. What are your thoughts about what the Supreme Court has done in response to
6: um, what he did? Man, look. Uh-oh, uh-oh. People are going to hold themselves accountable until they absolutely have to do it. Let me tell you something, Candace. You go out right now and your black behind does something they say is against the law. What are they doing? Hooking you up and taking you to jail, right? hmm But the Supreme Court, you can have a conservative guy paying for your mama's house, right? Paying for you, flying you out. He, he got flued out by this guy. He got flued out by him, right? And did not disclose any of these trips. And a lot of these Supreme Court justices have. And all jokes aside, this is extremely problematic because this is yet another thing that shows how the other half lives, the half that makes the decisions, right? The Supreme Court. Um, The idea that they finally put in some ethics rules at the behest of basically everyone, but just kind of acted like they didn't have to have them before is BS, because judges on the district court level, at the appellate level, and on the state level all the time do things where they can be sanctioned. Absolutely. They can can be censured, right? You know, we talked about it last last week about the case... um, in Washington, where the judge put his thumb on the scale and did some things to the extent that they thought it was appropriate to file a judicial complaint. The idea that the Supreme Court would not already have that code of ethics and adhere to it scrupulously is a problem, is a big problem. Um, And with Clarence Thomas in particular, obviously he's a a tool of the devil, so to speak, insofar as he is the, the real paragon of conservative values that are so often against his own people. We know how he's chosen up against us. But at least you generally see conservatives try to uphold the code of ethics as a means of applying it on other people, right? But here you didn't see that. You saw instead the Supreme Court begrudgingly um, adopt this code of ethics. And I think the real question will be, how will this code of ethics actually be uh, held against them? I don't know if Congress is going to pass legislation. I highly doubt that. But the problem is, I mean, it's basically like when the police investigate themselves. What happens when they find... A violation of the code of ethics. I mean, what is the real remedy for that? I think that remains to be seen.
3: Absolutely. I mean, Michael, who's who's in charge to oversee the Supreme Court of the land in this process? But I think somewhere, uh, Clarence Thomas did get the message that, well, I violated some ethics, and things changed because of things that he did. I think he got the message.
5: Yeah, I think uh, he's starting to get the message. Um, I don't know if he's going to recuse himself from um, the—when when it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, whether Donald Trump can be on the ballot. Um, I, I don't expect them to show any integrity there and recuse himself uh, from that case. But the the real question is, based upon my knowledge of the new uh, ethics uh, regulations or ethics standards that the Supreme Court came up with, how do you enforce it? Who, who wh- Which body enforces it? Um, so I don't think there is a body to enforce it, uh, at this point. So, but, but what, but what is important really for people to understand is how you got to this 6-3 conservative court is because of Trump becoming president in 2016 and getting uh, three, uh, conservative, uh, justices confirmed through Mitch McConnell's, uh, U.S. Senate. Yes. OK, and so this is an example of how elections have dire consequences. And in the case of Supreme Court justices and federal justices, those are lifelong uh, appointments. So they have lifelong consequences. Uh, 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 Clarence Thomas was nominated by George H.W. Bush in 1993. It's 30 years later. He's still on the Supreme Court ruling. OK, so this is nothing to play with. This is serious.
3: And, you know, Matt, I think it's especially important because the Supreme Court is is going to be doing so much, whether it has to do with with, uh, Trump's immunity um, or anything else that has to do with the election that's coming up, whether or not Trump is going to be on the ballot. They're making some important decisions. So when we talk about ethics and whether or not they should recuse themselves or even stay on a case, we do have to get into their backgrounds to determine whether or not there's a conflict of interest.
6: Absolutely. Uh, But to that end, I think we might also need to consider literally a constitutional amendment to change not only how they are appointed, but how they are retained, but also whether they have any kind of partisanship. Because the thing that makes no sense to me about the Supreme Court all the way down to your local municipal court is when you have judges that have partisan, openly known partisan leanings. I mean, the one place you should theoretically be able to go and have an objective arbiter is a court, including the Supreme Court. But instead, we're sitting here talking about how six of these jurists are known to be conservative and three are known to be liberal. And that's the reality of the system. But the problem is we now have to to be concerned about whether our rights are being taken away because of the makeup of this court. And that's always been the case, but it's especially problematic now. Because now, when we look at the Trump immunity, you don't have nine people in a vacuum deciding it. You have six people, three of whom he put on the court. Right. So when that immunity uh, question comes down and if it's in his favor, you can never really have true, you know, belief that it came down because that's the way they really thought it should happen. It's more confirmation bias type thing. They're making a decision in the uh, in the direction of the person who put them on the court. So I think we need to be looking more systemically at how we change the Supreme Court, number one. But number two, we need to stop having people on the court who are so far beyond Uh, being tuned in with society. I mean, what we have right now is we have a court that is probably starting out with the ending decision and then finding a way to make their opinions go Mm. where they end up, rather than looking at the crux of the issue and making decisions based on that. Um, And I think that's the concern we have going forward as it relates to ethics and just in general, the way they're doing their jobs. I think we have a real issue in this country with our Supreme Court, because if we believe it can be bought and sold, then we can't have any real faith in the opinions that they're, they're putting out.
3: Right. And when it comes to the Supreme Court making the decision as to what cases they even listen to, they get about eight to 9,000 cases each year that come before them that they have to go through a process to determine what are we even going to hear. So we know that this whole 6-3 Um, number in the breakdown, as you said, who knows where they are are, 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 or not starting backwards to get to the other way and even determining what cases they will even listen to. Uh, So the Supreme Court is always a very interesting study. Also an interesting study when it comes to student loan forgiveness. Now, Matt, I want to start with you. I don't know if you had student loans or not, but I know I had them for law school. I know I had them for grad school. Um, They were forgiven though, before all of this Biden stuff. So I was a lucky one. But you know, it is a big deal, these student loans and how they change people's lives literally. People are really living check to check sometimes Because of the amount of loans that they are paying, Biden did forgive over 130 billion dollars of student loans, and you know it trickled down a little bit. But what are your thoughts about the Supreme
0: Court and what? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business and with BetMGM at your fingertips every play and every game matter more than ever place your money line prop and parlay bets with a king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The
1: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates.
3: Biden did and kind of their back and forth, because ultimately it has an effect on the economy.
2: Yeah, it has a huge effect on the economy.
6: I do still, unfortunately, have student loans. And ironically, I thought about paying them today. (laughs) They are gone. But uh, in any event, you know, I think uh, that's a, a good question. And the reason I think it's a good question is because we in this country are having different conversations depending on the generation we're a part of and the reality as the way we see it. And the truth of the matter is, yes, student loans are an agreement that you make with the government, but student loans are also a huge benefit to the country as a whole, because the more educated the populace, the better we compete on the the global scale, right, and in the global markets. So it's it's a benefit. And the long and short of it is, you know, the Supreme Court making decisions on whether uh, Mr. Biden had the executive authority to do uh, to issue, you know, forgiveness for the student loans is something that's kind of what I'm getting at, is just the idea that I think a lot of times they start with the end goal in mind and they work towards that end goal rather than really working through the legal issue. Um, But I do think it's interesting that we're talking about executive authority because if Mr. Trump gets reelected, we are going to see the bounds of executive authority pushed out as far as they have ever been pushed out. And I think what will happen is you'll have some disingenuousness from the Supreme Court and from his party if he becomes the president again where they're saying, well, it's okay if he did it. Now, Biden couldn't do it before for these reasons, but now we're okay with it happening. Um, And I think if we have a Supreme Court that we think is bought and sold or is doing the bidding of the homies that put them there, I think we're going to have real concerns about the effect that has on our pocketbooks and the effect that it has on us keeping our rights, because the reality is our rights are being eroded before our very eyes by this court uh, who seems to keep knocking them down.
3: Uh, Michael, there was a real tug of war here. I mean, they went back and forth. At one point, people thought that their loans were forgiven, and then the Supreme Court stepped in and said, no, they're not. They went back and forth, Michael. I think that ultimately this is a campaign issue at the end of the day. What are your thoughts?
5: Yes, it's a campaign issue, and uh, Republicans, generally speaking, don't support student loan forgiveness. Now, some of them uh, supported forgiving um, the, the uh, um Paycheck protection loans, some of them uh, supported forgiving those and and got tens of thousands of dollars, in some cases over a million dollars. But when it comes to student loan debt, and it's close to $2 trillion of student loan debt out, African-American women uh, hold about two-thirds of that student loan debt. Uh, With this here, once again, this is the 6-3 conservative Supreme Court coming to kick us in the behind. This Mm -hmm. one— executive order from president joe biden would have moved 500,000 african american families from a negative net worth to a positive net worth this would have had a tremendous impact and this is something i was cautioning all these woke ass people out here who was who was saying what's taking what's holding up biden on forgiving students uh, forgiving student loans an executive order is not just writing out a wish list on the back of a napkin you have to do deep legal analysis to determine if you're on firm legal standing, because this could get overturned in court. They, they were using the 2003 HEROES Act passed by Congress that in times of a pandemic, in times of a crisis, gives the president power to discharge debt. And it applied here as far, as far as the COVID crisis, but this 6-3 conservative Supreme Court saw differently. So you're gonna to have to come back with legislation in the 119th Congress after the 2024 election to uh, address this issue.
3: All right. I want to end this segment by talking about voting rights. I mean, I think the bottom line, gentlemen, is people have to get to the polls. We have hundreds of cases across the country that have been brought um, that have negatively affect various uh, voting districts that have to do with the black community. The Republicans are in full force changing. Uh, What are your thoughts about this story that we will be talking about and have been talking about? Uh, since the Voting Rights Act. So um, what do you think um, in, in terms of this particular topic and it being in the headlining news? I'll start with I, you, Matt. I
6: think, I think it's... See, I'm too excited to jump in. I'm ready.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I,
6: think it's, right? I mean, that's what that's what they're doing in state legislatures around the country. That's what they've been doing forever, gerrymandering, drawing these maps, trying to draw them as, as uh, fruitfully for them as possible and cutting people out. And, and the reality is voting is the way we get to participate in the democracy, right? But beyond that, voting, if you cook the books, then you win. That's ultimately what it is. And the courts, um, I think, uh, have not been as clear as they should have been on this is very clearly a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, or this is not. But the larger idea is it's very clear what's being done in these state legislatures, and not even in the state, on the city level. For instance, in the city of Miami, they had a big fight about this just this last electoral cycle where people are being cut out of the process, and that's very obviously what's happening. But the way the law is written, they either don't have the requisite evidence or the courts are finding. They don't have the requisite evidence. So what needs to happen is the, the legislature, legislators who are engaging in this need to be voted out en on, on masse and a larger scale so that there's some actual political uh, danger for cutting people out of the process. And, you know, that's easier said than done, but that's ultimately what has to happen. And if I can harken back to one thing from before, one of the issues with student loans is the fact that college costs are getting out of control as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We talk about student loans in a vacuum. And yes, there are times where they're predatory. There are times where people take them out and they shouldn't, and they're not responsible. We can't act like that is impossible, but it's also very true that in a lot of places, the cost to go to college has skyrocketed. And the way people, middle-class Americans, are going to be able to go to school is taking out loans. That's the reality of it. So until we see it as a systemic and a a societal issue for having an educated populace, we're going to continue to have this asinine conversation. And and before we go
3: to break, I will say this, that I know that during the coronavirus when everybody was inside and they were taking their courses online, as, as, as young people sat in their rooms at home or in their dorms, parents and students did have to ask what exactly are we paying for because we are getting the same education and i'm sitting right here in the room i'm paying the same it's not like those uh costs of colleges were reduced by anything i mean sometimes they forgave a few student fees but i think that that was a really big question what are you actually paying for in college and why are there such skyrocketing prices all right to have more of Roland Martin unfiltered on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back after a break.
4: D Barnes,
3: and next on the frequency, we're talking about the rise in great black literature and the authors who are writing it. Joining me will be Professor and author Donna Hill,
4: discuss her writing journey and becoming a best-selling author. I always was writing, mm-hmm. but I never saw anybody that looked like me in the books that I was reading.
3: Plus, her work with the Center for Black Literature
4: and next year's National Black Writers Conference. That's right here on The Frequency on the Black Star Network. Hi, I'm Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network a balanced life with Dr. Jackie
3: Now on to some stories having to do with sports for 2023 that everybody was talking about. DeMar Hamlin suffered sudden cardiac arrest during the January 2nd football game after being hit in the chest during a routine play with Bengals receiver T Higgins. He made a full recovery. Meanwhile, Jim Trotter, Jim Trotter, he was fired from the NFL Network in March. He believes he was fired for publicly questioning Commissioner Roger Goodell about the absence of black senior managers in the NFL media newsroom and on the news desk. He has filed a racial discrimination lawsuit as well as he should have. And let's talk about Fisk Gymnastics because Fisk University made history this year by becoming the first HBCU gymnastics team to compete at the NCAA level. The Fisk Lady Bulldogs are now in direct competition With more established teams, including previous NCAA champions, Oklahoma, Michigan and UCLA, that's really something else, right? I mean, when we talk about what an HBCU has to do, Michael, in terms of getting into the field of a certain sport, that is no small feat. And gymnastics is not something... Listen, we are big, as I'm speaking about black women especially, we are big in the world of sports of gymnastics. But a lot of people don't get to have that exposure when they're young. It's an expensive sport. It takes a lot of time. And this is just an amazing story that they were able to do this and have been doing it successfully.
5: Yeah, you know, this is something great. This is going into a different area that you don't traditionally see... um, HBCUs in. Uh, we know we have Simone Biles, who's at the top of women's gymnastics. But um, African Americans at the top of gymnastics, a lot of times, especially in the Olympics, they're, they're you know it's a lot less of the real prominent ones. Um, when I was when I was a kid, I took gymnastics class at the YMCA um, here in Detroit. Took tumbling and things like that. I worked with the with the. Um, with the rings. I never got to the horse, I always wanted to do the horse. (laughs)
3: Michael, I I want to see you on the rings. Do you have pictures, I want to see you tumbling.
5: (laughs) I was like seven, eight years old, you know, but yeah, I did did that when I was a kid. But, um, so this is, I think, something really important and it's breaking down barriers. And one of the, the, I think gymnastics is also related to uh, being a ballerina because historically, African-American women have been attacked for uh, their body type, their body structure. And their body structure wasn't designed for uh, to be a ballerina. If you look at usually the gymnasts, usually the gymnasts are, are very short, very thin, okay? Well, African-American women oftentimes come with different types of body types. So they're dispelling a lot of these myths also.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And Matt, I think it's it's great. Um, I understand that one of the uh, young women, she had accepted... Um, uh, made an acceptance to another college, but then she changed her mind when she found out that Fisk was going to have this offering, and I think that it says something about her wanting to be in an arena surrounded by people that look like her.
6: Absolutely, and uh, if I'm correct, you're a Howardite like me, so you know the value of that, right? You know how much that empowers you, not only to be somewhere where everyone looks like you, but somewhere where everyone is setting the standard in what they do. Um, I think that's lost a lot of times on people. But HBCUs are incredible institutions with incredible programs in incredibly different, uh, different, and difficult realms, like engineering and and some of the other sciences and STEM. So, outside of that, in the in the athletic context, I love that, and we've seen that conversation on a larger scale, albeit in a little different way, in terms of some of the recruits who have decided not to go to other D one schools to go play for primetime, right? Right. This idea, this culture, and. What is being cultivated here uh, allows me to have my personhood to the, you know, the greatest extent of its fullness. So I like that for that sister, and I hope many others follow in, in her uh, footsteps. And shout out to Fisk. I mean, this is wonderful that not only are they dispelling, to Michael's point, the idea that African-Americans, black people cannot be involved in gymnastics, but a lot of times what you'll see here is you'll see pipelines where people will start on the, start to realize not only is this something I can do, but the costs aren't as prohibitive as I thought they were. And then here's a bastion of people who are doing it at a very high level from whom I can learn. So hopefully Fisk kind of sets ablaze other schools to do the same thing, not only in the gymnastic context, uh, but in others. And in fact, you know there's there's precedent for this because in my time at howard we had a lacrosse team us and morgan state we're the two hbcus in the country that had lacrosse teams wow um, there's precedent for it i know howard has a golf team and a lot of other schools have other programs but the point is you know little black kids out there who are interested in something that is not historically black or that's always identified with black people who can nonetheless excel this shows them hey you can compete and you can compete at the highest level and you can win and that's important for our young people to have that confidence.
3: And then I would be remiss, since we both went to Howard, Matt, to, to not say that Howard also recently um, added uh, ice skating. Um, and, you know, I grew up with, with a, a number of young black women who ice skated. So, I, I you know, nothing, nothing is, you know out of reach for us as we go through this. And, and, and Michael, as we know, the more that we do it, then the more exposure it will be and the more we'll be talking about it. And then like Matt said, it won't be cost prohibitive. There'll be programs that will be started and people will have a vested interest, Michael.
5: Yeah, it's difficult to be what you don't see. So when you see people like you doing these things, going into gymnastics, going into ice skating, et cetera, it's, um, it, it makes it attainable for you, makes it possible. One thing that we really need to get back into is horse racing, because African-American men dominated horse racing. The first Kentucky Derby, a lot of people don't know, ran in 1875, was won by Oliver Lewis. He was a 19-year-old former slave. We dominated horse racing, but it was it was white men who forced us out of horse racing because 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 they got jealous of the type of money we were making. Okay? So that's one field that we need to get back into that we used to dominate. Uh, We used to win the Kentucky Derbies. We won the major races, the the Belmont Stakes, things like this. We won the major horse races here in the country, but also in Europe as well.
3: Uh, For those of you who are looking for something to watch, which I know it's a lot of you who are sitting at home right now. After this, though, there was an interesting documentary about black ice hockey players. Very, very good. All right, let's move on to Jim Trotter and the fact that he was fired Matt, he asked those questions, and it was one question too many asked the wrong way. And he was, well, his contract was not renewed. But listen, we, we know what all of that dancing is about.
6: Yes, thank you again, Candace. You always hit the nail on the head because that's exactly what they said. His, quote, contract was not renewed, right? Not the same as he got fired, which is functionally what happened. But shout out to Jim Trotter. I think that um, this is really an important story. Because this shows us that the courage that we claim to have, when we're called on to have it, we have to actually have it at the risk of losing uh, jobs, at the risk of having other issues, particularly when our credibility as it relates to our job is on the line. Jim Trotter is known as the quintessential journalist, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Very, very, very good journalist. And for him to keep asking those questions, particularly from a league that makes an inordinate amount of money on the back of black labor and then chucks and jives when it comes to Black History Month and all the PR stuff, but nonetheless is, doesn't have black people in its ranks at the levels that it should until some of the the movement recently. Um, it's very important that somebody with the platform of Jim Trotter is unafraid to ask those, inque- those questions of Roger Goodell. These questions have to be asked. And I'm glad that he did, and uh, God willing, you know, he'll be much greater on the back end for it. But this goes to the idea that if you don't stay in the lane, they often want you to stay in, and they will take you out of the race completely um, by saying your contract wasn't renewed or we went in a different direction when functionally he got fired for being real and asking the questions that needed to be asked.
3: Right, and asking the questions that he was getting paid to do because um, that is an issue, as we all know, in the NFL and across a lot of sports, where most of the people are people of color. Um, this, this civil rights lawsuit, Michael, that, that he filed, I mean, this really speaks to not just what's going on with him, but also what goes on in the world of media, as, you, as you've touched upon throughout the evening, that you have to have people in certain positions in order put, to put the right stories out there or, or the true stories out there or better stories out there so that people can get a fuller picture of of, of the world that we live in.
2: Yeah,
5: absolutely. And uh, Jim Trotter was doing not just what he was paid to do, but he's doing what he should do as an African-American man who covers the NFL. This is what he should do. The NFL is about 68 to 70% African-American depending upon which year it is. And here he has a chance to ask NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, this question, okay? So he was absolutely correct. What His contract not being renewed shows the real lack of commitment that this whole organization has to African Americans. And some people say NFL means not for long because the average career in the NFL is about 3.5, 3.6 seasons. But what's missing from this conversation, I would say, is where is Jay-Z? Where's Jigga? Mm. Because Jigga was brought into the house by Roger Goodell to cut a deal with the NFL to direct the halftime show for the Super Bowl, to put out inspirational music and bring artists on to put out inspirational music, things like this. And Jigga said this was the next step in Colin Kaepernick's protest. But And and remember, a few years ago, Jigga put out the call for top, uh, top entertainers not to perform at the Super Bowl halftime show. That's right. Then, this past Super Bowl, who performed Rihanna? Because he was brought into the house. They cut a backroom deal to cut Colin Kaepernick out. So has has Jay-Z spoke up about uh, Jim Trotter's uh, contract not being renewed and why it wasn't renewed. So I, f- I just find all this, you know, very interesting when things like this um, happen out and people stay silent.
3: And you know what? Sometimes the silence can be misinterpreted. You never know what's going on behind the scenes. And sometimes, because we know how people get the story wrong when they rejudge the story, rewrite the story, they just don't get the story right. So sometimes, You do stay quiet behind the scenes, but I do not know for sure. I will say that Matt, I wanted to turn it over to you because listen, this is a civil rights case and we do have the question of the contract not being renewed, but in your estimation, is that a strong defense that, well, we just weren't renewing his contract. It seems to me like he's got a a lot else on his side to make his case.
6: Well, unfortunately, I haven't read the lawsuit, so I don't know the nature of how he's prosecuting it. Um, Is he bringing it from the standpoint of saying he was fired because he was using the First Amendment? What is the crux of it? I honestly don't know. I haven't seen that.
3: Well, he's saying racial discrimination and because of who he was, the position that he was in and the types of questions that he was asking that that caused them to fire uh, to to, you know, to make a change in his status as a worker there for NFL media.
6: Gotcha. Appreciate the clarification. Yeah, in that respect, I think that, you know, if that's the reason that he's prosecuting the lawsuit, then I think there's going to be a lot of evidence toward that, particularly because I think Michael said it earlier, and you said it, not only was he asking the questions that he should ask, he was asking the questions he was being paid to ask, right? So unless they've got some kind of cause or something that would show that Jim Trotter wasn't doing his job, then it's very obvious that there's a subterfuge going on here. And that is, hey, you're putting the, the big man, Roger Goodell, on the chopping block, uh, asking questions about diversity, and we don't want you to go as far as you're going. And here's the thing, we're not talking about a journalist that has a checkered past, who's made up sources, or has some you know, credibility issue in the background, which is what they normally do. That's right. Fascinating. You're, you're talking about someone who's considered the highest level uh, at his job. So. That's a subterfuge. That's what they use. Like you said, they rejuice the story to make it sound a certain way. Um, But from an employment standpoint, obviously, that'll be dependent on his contract, what the contract says, how it's written and all of that. But I suspect what will probably happen is you'll see an out of of court settlement, um, because if Jim Trotter, you know, has the evidence that. That he probably has the NFL isn't going to want those depositions, they're not going to want Roger Goodell <laughs> and whoever the head of marketing is under oath having to testify about you know why they let Jim Trotter go,
3: right? Uh, right, uh, and put all that on record and 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 get all the ugliness out there on record, like we did, like they did with that, um, that email scandal. I think one of the things too that um speaks to what's going on here is that you said it if he did have a checkered pass, we would have heard about it. If there was a problem with the way that he was reporting, we would have heard about it. But I think what also works in his favor is that he is just one of the few, and I'm not sure of the numbers, but there are not a lot of people in the NF—African Americans in the NFL media newsroom. So for him to be one of the, the few—and again, I need those numbers— I think it speaks for itself. Why are you getting rid of him if he is is held in the highest regard and you guys have made a commitment to diversity, right? We know that they have spoken about this. So I think that that speaks in his favor. All right. I want to make sure that we talk about Damar Hamlin, his collapse, his recovery. I mean, I think it pulled people together. I think it's that definitely was something that people were talking about, Michael, Um, And I think that when we do talk about sports and teams, it is something that people generally across the board, black and white, rally around, and, and he made a fine recovery.
5: Yeah, he did make a fine recovery, and uh, hopefully when he leaves the NFL, he won't have lifelong injuries like a lot of um, other uh, former NFL players have. Um, this shocked everybody. This shocked the players on the field. Some of them were crying because, you know, you some, some of them realize you're going to get injured, but you don't want to lose your life playing this game, okay, that that goes way beyond what people are usually willing to sacrifice here. Luckily, he was able to get the right doctors, get the right team of doctors around him. He, he's given credit numerous times to his doctors. He, he's back out, uh, you know, on the playing field. So um, he showed he showed tremendous courage in, in fighting and coming back as well. So uh, hopefully, he has a, continues a, a successful career. And when he leaves the NFL, because once again, the average career is three and a half to three point six seasons. When he leaves, hopefully he won't have lifelong
1: injuries.
3: And Matt, like he said, um, he, he did get hurt, went back to play. He's playing now. It does bring up an interesting question about the protection that football players have when they do retire. You're playing a sport where every day that you put yourself out there, you could get hurt or you could have a concussion or you could have a life altering injury that just takes you off of the field. I think that this opened up a lot of discussion about players Um, what happens to them on the field and how we actually take care of them.
6: I think you were exactly right. And to that end, I think what's really important about this is we have to be honest. When we talk about professional athletes, these are our modern-day gladiators, right? We watch people who are much stronger and faster and taller and bigger than we are and ever will be compete at a level we cannot compete at, obviously. The reason I mention that as a precursor is because a lot of times when we talk about athletes, we don't talk about them as humans. We talk about them as these objects who produce you know, what we want to watch as a game. Um, we don't think about them as people that have families. Um, and sometimes the NFL might do a puff piece, but ultimately, just generally speaking, we don't talk about athletes with the intelligence that we know that they have, with the business acumen a lot of them have. And here, I think what was important about this story is that, one, it was, it was presented just from a standpoint of humanity. Here's a young man who had a very unfortunate health issue, and thankfully he triumphed over that. But to that end, talking about retirement and the CTE and some of the things that we know have come out of this, I'm glad that we see players standing up for themselves in the way that they are and demanding protection, because at the end of the day, it is entertainment, but it's entertainment that could basically risk your life. For entertaining us on Sunday afternoon, you're putting your life at risk, Mm. especially if you play for a long time. So I like the idea from a labor standpoint that their unions in both the NFL and the other sports are strong and are advocating strongly and are not allowing people to put them in the box of purely gladiators who don't have, you know, attendant circumstances outside of that and larger family lives and larger concerns about retirement and their health. So this is good. And I think it centers the conversation on humanity in a way we haven't seen always applied to the athletes.
3: Absolutely. Centered upon humanity. They are not superhumans. They are indeed humans. All right, we're going to have more headlining news from 2023 after a break. Stay with us.
7: A new year for a new you. Curl Prep Natural Hair Solutions at curlprep.com. is an amazing organic line for curls, locks, braids, twists, and even those wigs and extensions. Women, men, and children are loving this line. Look at this video, and you be the judge. People line up to see this product in action at hair shows, and when they take a seat and try it, They don't believe it's their hair. Buy the products at curlprep.com. It works on all hair types. Use code ROLAND, that's R-O-L-A-N-D, lowercase letters, to get a 15% discount. Parents, remove the ouch. You will love this system because you can comb the product through your child's hair with your fingers. Seasoned Saints are loving the product. It's all at curlprep.com. Use code ROLAND, lowercase letters, to get a 15% discount. You won't believe it's your hair.
3: Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Karashiana Allen has been missing from Little Rock, Arkansas since December 12th, 2023. The 17-year-old is five feet three inches tall, weighs 140 pounds, and has black hair and brown eyes. Anyone with information about Karashiana Allen is urged to call the North Little Rock, Arkansas Police Department at 501-758-1234. All right, so we are back talking about what folks were talking about in 2023. One of the most talked about stories in 2023 is the August 5th, Montgomery, Alabama, Riverfront brawl. The black Alabama riverboat co-captain who was attacked was charged with assault, but those charges were eventually dropped. The white people involved, they all pled guilty to harassment charges. Reggie Bernard Ray, the man who used the folding chair as a weapon, pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct. Well, this is one for the records, right? I mean, T-shirts, hats, stickers, everything came. I mean, the chair became a weapon. Why do you think this took on, uh, I guess, I guess, you know, why people were paying attention to it, the, a life of its own? Why did it take on a life of its own, Michael?
5: Well, because this uh, was a... It, it, this was African Americans fighting against white people, and this is in Alabama. In Alabama is where Bloody Sunday took place, March seventh, nineteen sixty-five. Alabama, former Confederate state, it has a history of racial conflict. So here we see this uh, uh, black, uh, this uh, riverboat co-captain, Damien Pickett. Uh, we saw him doing his job, okay, and we saw these uh, some of these white people, and they were probably intoxicated, at least some of them. Um, basically attacking him. And then we saw other African-Americans come to his defense. So this became memes. This became a viral story. The story I did on this on the African History Network, on our Facebook fan page, got 250,000 views. So this, this was huge. But we have a history of fighting back. Um, one of the books that Roland talks about here on this show, um, this nonviolent stuff to get you killed, how guns made the civil rights movement possible by professor Charles E. Cobb Jr. We have a history of armed resistance and fighting back against oppression in this country. So this is just a continuation of this. It was just unarmed unless you count that white folding chair.
3: Mm. You know, what were your conversations with your friends, Matt, when you realized, wait, this is really taking a life
6: on a life of its own? So we talked about non-traditional sports in the black community. My sons might need swimming lessons because that 16-year-old cat who jumped in the water and swam across the fight, that young man understood his charge. Let's first shout out to him. I think the conversations, though, honestly, you know, jokes aside, the conversations are, first, it was good to see black people stand up for black people and just say, look, this brother is getting a bad go of it. We're going to go protect him. I mean, just getting down to it, particularly because... He was doing his job. He wasn't doing anything wrong. It was, there was no question about his authority to be there and him doing his job. And these people who were white decided to come and give him you know, grief and then start attacking him. So the, the chair and some of the other things, I mean, truthfully, as a lawyer, I did see there was going to be some probably difficulty with some of the charges because of how attenuated they were from the, the protection element. But watching this video infuriated me when I saw it because... This is the kind of thing that black people have had to deal with the entire time we've been in this country. And this is the kind of thing where, when it's another person, for instance, if the roles were reversed, if these were four black men attacking a white man, doing his job on the dock there, what we would have heard about is, quote, he's a hero, right? He's trying to just do his job. Here he is doing the right thing, and then he gets attacked by these mongrels. But in this situation, the opposite happened whereas the white people were the ones who did not have any any course to be there doing it the way they were. And thankfully, they got what was coming to them. I mean, frankly, they started a problem that was ended by people there who were protecting this brother. So uh, the chair, you know, maybe that's a little too far or too late in the process. Mm-hmm. But The bigger point is people there did not allow this brother to get attacked without standing up for him. And I think that's the conversation I saw most is people saying, yes, y'all chose the wrong ones because we're about that life, number one. And number two, if I see one of my people being attacked, I'm going to stand up for them and defend them. And that's exactly what happened here. So I'm, I'm glad to see it. And, you know, Michael, Although,
3: and this actually reminds me of just kind of a theme that we've been talking about. And It's just black people being at a certain place and then white people saying, you're not supposed to be here and trying to actually manage the situation. And then it came out completely different than many of the situations that we see. And I think that, that struck a chord here too.
5: Well, they messed around and found out. That's what happened, okay? And <laughs> like I said, we have a we have a history of fighting back. There's a history of resistance in this country, whether we talk about the Red Summer of 1919, whether we talk about Bloody Sunday in Alabama, whether we talk about the fight for voting rights, et cetera. And, you know, um, one of the other things that we saw here is um, there was a lot of pride that African-Americans had um, when, when this took place as well. But it's important to understand that this took place in the same year, 2023, where the national theme for Black History Month this year was Black Resistance. Mm. And there's been an annual theme since 1928. The annual theme comes from Asala Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. And that was the annual theme this year, Black Resistance, in all of the different ways that we have fought back against white supremacy and racism in this country. So this is a perfect uh, example of that.
3: All right, I want to move to music right now on the Tennessee State University's um, Grammy that they won, actually two Grammys. Uh, Tennessee State University's Aristocrat of Bands is the first collegiate band to win a Grammy Award during the 65th annual Grammys. The HBCU band marched away with not one history-making win, but two. TSU scored two gramophones in the Best Roots Gospel Album category, Uh, for the Urban Hymnal and their feature on Jay Ivey's The Poet who sat by their door. I think this is just amazing. I mean, you hear this story and you see the excitement, Michael, on these students' um, faces that they w- actually won a Grammy Award. It all started out with just a little idea. Um, and they decided, let's make this an album. They state, They did their work. And after their work, they went and recorded right at the school and they actually won a Grammy, the first of this kind ever. This is fascinating.
5: Uh, Yes, it is. And I hadn't really heard about this story. But, you know, we have a a history of marching bands at HBCUs. Um, I I wasn't in a marching band, but I did play saxophone in fifth and sixth grade. I should have stayed. I should have stayed with it. You know, my mother was disappointed when I stopped. But uh, this is fantastic. And this could open, even though uh, a lot of these students may not go on to be professional um, musicians, okay, but this would probably be something that they never forget. And it can open opportunities into other professions within the music industry besides just uh, playing an instrument or being an entertainer.
3: Yes, um, you know, if you you listen to it, they've got a version, Matt, on there of Wade in the Water that's just really beautiful and funky. Uh, And I think since we've been talking about colleges this, this evening and experiences that you can get, I mean, just look at all the things that we've talked about and how the college experience has really kind of changed since we've been there. We've been talking about the gymnastics and ice skating. As you said, you did have lacrosse at Howard, but this is really one for the books that students can be a part of a team and now claim, hey, uh, I've won a couple of Grammys. You know that, right?
6: First off, all hail to the brothers of Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia, many of whom are surely in that band. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that they won this Grammy, especially because HBCU bands set the standard for all collegiate bands. If you look at PWIs, they didn't start transcribing R&B songs and rap tunes and stuff until HBCUs did it and did it well, right? That's and right. a lot of these schools now will play the things you hear on the radio when they never did it before, and that's because some, somebody at TSU or Fisk or Howard or wherever was transcribing our music for our people because they knew when it was played at a football game it would get everybody hyped so i'm really glad that tsu has won this grammy but even if they don't come home with hardware any other band this is an indispensable part of the hbcu experience it's why people come to our games even if they don't go to our colleges because the bands are just so rich with uh musical culture and and history and i'm really glad that they they walked home with those gramophones shout out to tsu and shout out to all the hbcu bands We love y'all, and y'all are really so important to our culture.
3: All right. Also in the world of music, 50th year of the anniversary of hip-hop. And when we we talk about hip-hop and we mention anybody from, hey, Busta Rhymes to Nas to Wu-Tang Clan, you name it, these really are storytellers. These are the storytellers of our community. Whether you don't like hip-hop or whether you do, they are out there. I remember at the time, Michael, um, when uh, it it was said that hip-hop ah, it was just a fleeting thing. And now look right. at this industry. When you look at a Queen Latifah or LL Cool J, there's so many people who only know them as, as actors. They don't even understand how they've parlayed into something else. You can go so many places when you are in this industry.
5: Yeah. You know, this is uh, the 50th anniversary of what we call hip hop, which is actually a culture. Is not the 50th anniversary of rap. Rapping is the recitation of lyrics over music. Hip hop consists of four elements, MC and break dancing, DJ and graffiti. The fifth element was was uh, knowledge. So those are basically the five elements of this culture that we call hip hop. Some people dispute that date. We know that party did take place uh, August 11th, 1973. Some people dispute that as whether that's the real origin or not. A lot of times you can't put an exact date or time on something like this. But what's um, even more importantly, and a lot of the legends of hip hop have come out to criticize the negative corporate controlled hip hop that's out today, especially the exploitation of African American female artists. So that's something that we have to reckon with uh, as well right now. And secondly, Um, African-Americans need to own and control our own music. We're creating billions of dollars for white corporations, but we have to own and control this music also.
3: And and Matt, I I was listening to a Target commercial the other day, and it was a Faith Evans song remix. It has permeated every part of the culture. Everybody understands really who these people are. I mean, all of the leaders in in the world of the hip-hop and the hip-hop culture, they've been adopted by everybody in the world.
6: They have, and I'm glad um, that they have because it's such an incredibly important art form. But what I think is dishonest about it is for so long they were vilified. Mm. They were vilified. They didn't want their young white kids buying hip-hop records, despite the fact that they were at one point, my understanding, the largest demographic buying hip-hop records, right? So I'm glad that there is less of an attack on hip-hop now, but I think Michael's exactly right about ownership. I mean, that's an important thing that needs to be democratized. Because as we know, what has happened in the music industry and happened in music in general is you can produce now albums in a way you were not able to do so even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30 years ago. So it's democratized the process. And a lot of people who are now artists that we hear and see every day are people who may not have had that opportunity years ago. However, we need to make sure that what we democratize is the information, Um, understanding what a 360 deal is, understanding how uh residuals work understanding how uh streams work i mean i saw a thing today about snoop Dogg mm-hmm. talking about how we had a million a billion plays on spotify and it only culminated in like forty-five thousand dollars in in royalties so mm. people right. need to know the business so that they know how to protect not only their craft and their product but how to capitalize upon it because at the end of the day you know we have some very talented people in our community who are making incredible music but if they're not reaping the benefits of it there's still a problem Power. And we need to, to change that by democratizing the information that they have. But uh, happy 50th anniversary to hip-hop. I gotta say, the album this year was Michael from Killer Mike. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It's ridiculous. Oh,
3: wow. Thank you for that recommendation. I was listening to an interview with Buster Rhymes the other day, and he was talking about how he went to the Apollo. His father was like, it, th- why are you doing this? This is not going to go anywhere. Of course, this was decades ago. <laughs> and when he failed, his father said, I told you so why are you doing this and he said he wrote a note on the wall of his bedroom and and he he laid out exactly what he was going to be and then he ultimately became that and the reason i bring that up is because this is a music this is a career right we're not just talking about being in front and on the mic we are talking about writing and publishing we're talking about uh you know licensing and it's just a, a, a huge arena that as you said matt Now people can be more in control of it, generally speaking, much different than it was, as you said, even just 10 years ago. Um, Also in the world of music, Tracy Chapman. Tracy Chapman made country music history by becoming the first black woman to be the sole writer of a song to the top uh, to top the country charts. I mean, it only took a few decades, Michael, but she did it. And I think that this is a story that is really worth paying attention to because of the fact that she is a black woman and it's really kind of long overdue in terms of Chase, Tracy Chapman and her place in history. And it's great that she is being recognized. I mean, that song is is, is really powerful.
5: Um, yes, it is. Hold on.
3: Fast Car. Yes,
5: it is. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on. Yeah, yeah Fast Car. <laughs> uh, so it was remade by Luke Combs. Now, this is one of the few times that... It has been a benefit to an African American artist for a white artist to cover your song because there's a history. That's right. Of white artists covering Black people's songs. Go, Little Richard talked about this when uh, Pat Boone did "Tutti Fruit. It was horrific, number one. But uh, <laughs> you had white people doing other uh, Black uh, artists' songs. You had Elvis Presley doing Big Mama Thornton's "Hound Dog." So here, this has benefited her. And if I remember correctly, she wrote the song also. If I, if I, she did got this. Yeah, she got so so. Okay, so she makes money from that as well. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's different than just put. It's different than just performing a song and a white artist covers it. So you know, this is uh, this is uh, big for her, and this is the first time this has uh, happened, and she she's been able to get back into mainstream media and introduced to another generation who may not have known about her.
3: A- Absolutely. Really, really a timeless song. All right. We've run out of time for this break, but we're going to be back after this break and we're going to talk more with our panel. Stay with us on Roland Martin Unfiltered here on the Black Star Network. All right, we have covered quite a lot of ground here as we talk about the year in review and the headlining news of 2023. We have a couple of minutes. I want to make sure we go to our guests for their predictions for 2024. Michael, I'll start with you. What are some of your thoughts about what you expect to see in 2024 and why you think it probably will happen?
5: Uh, Well, this is going to be a crazy election year. Uh, watch out for deep fakes because of the uh, AI technology that's available right now, number one. Number two, you're going to see probably at least one trial uh, dealing with Donald Trump uh, take place. Uh, number three, we're going to really have to understand uh, politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources. Um, and we're going to have to come out and vote our interests and I think uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to win when people realize what's at stake, one, number two, what has been accomplished uh, in, in, in the three years that they've been in office. And, and also, uh, I'm expecting uh, some type of political violence as well. We've already seen an increase in death threats against members of Congress. We've seen uh, a death threat against uh, Judge Chokton in the Washington, mm. D.C. case. Uh, so I'm expecting uh, political
6: uh, violence to take place as well.
3: All right, Matt, I will toss it over to you.
6: I think in 2024, black people are going to continue being great. We're going to continue thriving despite some of the circumstances we're in. Often, I think Mr. Trump is going to get convicted in at least one of his cases. I think the Supreme Court is going to try to give him immunity and or say that he deserves to be on the ballot. I think their logic is going to be that there hasn't been a judicial finding, or at least in some of the circumstances, judicial findings that he engaged in an insurrection. I think they're going to tap dance around the Constitution, which pretty clearly says if a person has engaged in an insurrection, it doesn't talk about how that finding is made. I think they'll find a way to say that he has not been proven to have engaged in an insurrection and he'll be allowed to be on the ballot. I don't know about the election. I'm concerned. Mm. I want to believe that People who have their eyes open of all political stripes are going to recognize that he has been very clear about his bend towards authoritarianism. But the fact that he's so far ahead in the polls and hasn't even shown up at a debate should let you know that the people who are riding for him are really riding for him. So I wish I had a clear prediction on that. I want to believe that reason will prevail, but, unfortunately, I don't know that I can believe that. Um, I think the Supreme Court, I I saw a comment earlier. Somebody was asking about our rights being eroded, what rights are being eroded. I think a lot of rights are being eroded, not only because of the abortion issue and affirmative action, but I think anything that you saw the Warren Court do back in the 60s, Mm -hmm. anything take for granted as rights, I think are on the chopping block now. And I think that's the case because there are people who believe in originalism and textualism who say that's not inside the confines of the Constitution. But the reality is we live in a world that was never contemplated Mm. by the Constitution. And unless we have, uh, you know, reasonable jurists who are looking at the reality of life today, we'll continue to have rulings that don't jive with reality as we know it to be. All right, I'm (laughs) going to jump
3: in and I'm actually going to go with what you said at the top. Black people are going to continue to be great. That is 100% certain. I want to thank the both of you for being with us, especially when I know that this is the holiday season. Loved having you here tonight. As always, a wonderful discussion.
6: Good seeing the both of you. Happy New Year to you. you. Happy Happy New Year Year to you. You're always awesome, Candace. So shout out to you.
3: Matt, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Listen, that does it for us here at Roland Martin Unfiltered in 2023. We wish you all a safe new year, and we want to thank the Bring the Funk fan club members who have supported us this year. We'll see you in 2024. Holla!
2: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave Adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love. Every week, say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. if you dare.